Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatic, sitting here with Aaron Cameron. Our guest today for her third appearance on the podcast is Wendy Waters of GWL Realty Advisors, where she is the Senior Director of Research. Welcome back to the podcast, Wendy. Thanks for having me back. So I don't know, we can't. We shouldn't probably go back into, what's your background story and how did you get involved in real estate? We've probably done that twice already. So We'll link to those episodes. <laughs> yeah, if, you, if you really want to know what Wendy, how Wendy got involved in commercial real estate, you can go listen to other episodes. We can summarize it by saying highly educated, highly accomplished. Is yes, there we go. That covers it. Yes. Does, that, does that work? <laughs> yeah. Anything else you want to add? Uh, no, that, so- that sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> okay, okay, good. Um, so let's jump right into it. Today we're we're going to talk about well we're going to talk about a variety of things, but I guess to set the table, it's demographics, the influx we've had of of demographics, and kind of the impact that's having on real estate in in a variety of different ways. So I don't know, Wendy, where's the best place to start? Where's the best place to start with this? Do you want to talk about the numbers of demographics, just the just the general sheer volumes we're seeing, and then kind of lead how that leads into different asset classes? Yeah, although maybe I'll back up on just you know something probably every all of your listeners, especially based in Toronto, but even if they're not based in Toronto, will know is that there has been a tremendous run up in the price of ownership housing, such as condominiums, as well as in rental rates in the Toronto area, and especially the last three years. And there's been a lot of, you know, speculation as to why that is. But I think one of the, the biggest reasons that doesn't get talked about enough is Toronto added 150,000 people aged 20 to 39 in the last three years. So from middle of 2015 to the middle of 2018, which is what we have data for. That's a lot of people. In that time, only added 4,400 purpose-built rental units. Obviously, there was some condo product, but some of that goes to owner-occupiers, some some goes to to rental. So certainly that provided housing for some people. But that was on top of an existing significant amount of pent-up demand of people living in overcrowded housing, people still living with their parents. So that's one of the key things that's shaping Toronto. It's shaping the housing market in terms of creating challenges for people who live here, but also employers. But it's also part of the other changes happening in Toronto. There's a tremendous demand for office space. So these people are coming for jobs in many cases or to get an education or to get a job, hopefully, in Toronto. So there's, you know, that's creating demand for, for office space. This demographic's a big user of e-commerce and online shopping. So it's creating demand for... In, in retail, industrial, industrial, retail, industrial. Yeah. It's a demographic that's very big on consuming experiences. So that's creating a different urban environment. So we've seen a lot of change from this. And I thought that would be worth talking about today. So the term, the term is heavily overused, but can we classify that? So what was the age group? It was 150,000 people in age the age? Tw- 20 to 39. 20 so, to 39. That's so, good for the bar scene. It must be good, great for the bar scene. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Can we, we and can we classify them as millennials? Is that Or is that too too vague? Yeah, so certainly term- the younger the younger ones would skew that way. I'm 38, so I fall in this category, and I wouldn't consider myself a millennial. So I guess it's it's a little bit of different age categories. It is, and so I tend not to use that term. Sure. Um, and also, by the time you're getting down to the 20 year olds, you are getting into the Gen Z or whatever Gen the next, next or whatever is, whatever yeah. we're calling that group. So I, I tend to use that, but we could use millennial in terms of that's probably more of the the 25 to 35. You know, I think right. you're you're probably a borderline millennial. There. Yeah, I am <laughs> technically, but not emotionally. Yes, yeah, you're emotionally <laughs> and spiritually not one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and that's also one of the difficulties of that label is that some things about people's behavior and choices has just has to do with their age, and some things has to do with where they are in life. And so you could be 
30 years old and not really acting like a millennial because of just who you are as a person. And also, you know, you might already have kids that are 10 years old and, you know, you're, you're doesn't make doesn't fit the mold for th- sure. Exactly. Well, for, Aaron, for Aaron's demographic, he recently just bought a, a freestanding home, and he's got a second kid on the way. So he's probably not the demographic we're talking about here. And he's and he's in the suburbs. So yeah. this is all probably not what we're discussing. Not here. What we're not, talking yeah. downtown pressure on uh, live work play kind of. And then of that one hundred fifty thousand are those internal? How much of that is sort of what's we're looking for immigration versus you know coming from other parts of the Canada? Is it? Do you have a sense of what that split looks like? Yeah. So in, in terms of the net, the net numbers are very much from immigrants, but there's a lot. So, and I think, you know, Toronto gets somewhere in the range of six, 60 to 70,000 net immigrants. There's also people who leave and, you know, leave Toronto and go to another go part of the world. Else. Why would they bother? <laughs> Just kidding. Keep I don't know. Going. You can yeah. see the whole world in Toronto, any language you want. Because it's, it's expensive want, here. That's it's, why. It's yeah. expensive. But then there's also a large domestic flow. And over the past three years, this is another change is that what's called interprovincial migration has turned positive for Toronto, which means more people are moving to Toronto from other provinces in Canada than are leaving Toronto to go to other provinces. At, at whose and, expense do you know which provinces are losing that uh, equation? I would say Calgary and Alberta is one place where they're not seeing as much. There's, it's relatively flat, whereas it used to be Calgary had a huge net Flow positive. that positive flow of interprovincial migration because there were so many great job opportunities, and especially for this younger demographic, where you know you, you maybe you want some responsi- more responsibility at your career earlier. There was that opportunity in Calgary during the the energy boom, and that's obviously gone. So that's a big change in the last three years. So more people from the other parts of Canada coming to Toronto for opportunities, and then you've got people from other parts of the world coming to Toronto for opportunities. And the only, the net outflow though is still intraprovincial. So relocating from Toronto to another city in Ontario, that's uh, actually increased a little bit on the net outflow, but that can also include people moving to what I call go train Toronto. So moving to Kitchener, moving to Barrie, moving to Hamilton, where they're technically in another census metropolitan area, yet you can take a train and be at a job in Toronto, or you can get in your car if you worked in Oakville and lived in Hamilton. You know, it's not that far of a commute. So they would still have impacts on our requirements for retail, requirements for infrastructure. So they're not being removed from the equation. They still have an impact. Not completely, especially if they're still in this, what we call the golden horseshoe, you know, or I call it go train Toronto. Yeah. Um, that it's, you can, you can get in and out of Toronto fairly easily from these places as opposed to that. But there's also been a fair flow out to, uh, I think Ottawa and London, Ontario. Which we had uh, clients in from London that were talking about the lineup every morning at 6 a.m. for people jumping on the train coming into Toronto, commuting from London every day to Toronto to work downtown Toronto. So two hours both ways sitting on a train, which I mean just speaks to, and I think about the math that they're doing, and this kind of speaks to what we're talking about here is they're saying, well, if I can sell my house for a million dollars in Toronto and buy a much larger house for 350000 in London, is it worth it? You know, sometimes they might have been commuting for an hour and a half anyway. So an extra half an hour of commute to put seven hundred thousand dollars in their pocket and a better quality of life. I don't know. Like that's that's math that I don't necessarily subscribe to. But yeah, and it's and happening. Right? Yeah, it's happening. Obviously, the majority of people are staying here. You wouldn't have this huge population growth yeah, going on in, in Toronto. But it's making it's forcing people to have those decisions, right? And those those conversations around their dinner table. Yeah, and I did notice in some of the demographics of who's leaving is it tends to be seems to be people in their forties along with people who are age zero to five. So you, you can imagine, obviously the zero to five year olds are probably going with the 40 year olds. So, hope so. Yeah, that, so that would line up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, so it may well be families making a decision to, 
you know, to save some money or to pull some money off the table on housing, or maybe they never got into the market in Toronto and they're just deciding that they want that. But back to Toronto, yet yeah, the you know the, obviously the majority of people you know, people are staying here. That's why it's growing, and that's why there's some so many pressures so, on. So real I, you're not going to have an answer to this, Wendy, but it's fun to play this game anyway. You know, so what is what's the repercussions? What's the short term repercussions to this? So we've had this influx. We know rents are arising and continue to rise. Housing pricing, whether it's the condo side or the single family side, also continue to rise. You know, I look around a lot of the you know, my colleagues at First National that have yet to buy a house, didn't get into the market, no longer can are even thinking about it. They're just thinking about reing renters, and they're thinking about how do I get into a place where I can be, you know, get myself rental control and not have to worry about you know just random increases in the rents. Do you see an end to this? Like, what's what is what happens in the next couple of years? What do you think happens in the next couple of years? Well, you're right. It, it's a it's a really difficult question. question. I know. I, I yeah. think Toronto's so big and it's got so much momentum and so much of the growth is is international and the rise of the international middle class over the last, I guess since what I do the numbers since 1990, I think three billion people around the world moved into the middle class. They're educating their children. So they're growing up. There may be some of these twenty to thirty-nine year olds moving here. So the, I think I think for Toronto, even in an economic downturn, I think there's still going to be these be people moving here. And so I think the the challenge is just trying to catch up on the housing supply side. Yeah. And you know I know a lot of politicians are grappling with it. There's been some new policies in Ontario, which I think are you know sound you know on first glance sound like they could be helpful. But that's that's a challenge going are, forward. Are there lessons in Vancouver? I mean, they're what feels like a couple of years ahead of us, at least on some of the pricing metrics. You know, you're, they, I hear I, every time I in Vancouver, I hear oh, another astronomical price for condos. But I think there's still there's a lot of stuff priced double the cost of some downtown condos in Toronto. Rents are sometimes five, six dollars per unit. Whereas in Toronto, they're still sort of three and a half to four bucks. And we've seen a flattening now of a lot of those those sort of individual markets in Vancouver. Is that kind of the high water mark? Do you think? think at some point the income levels just don't calculate. Yeah, so when you were doing the the 350 $4 you're talking about rents per rents square per foot. Rents per square foot. Okay, Sorry, just, yeah. Well, yeah. I just want to make sure please, also please for our clarify, for our, yeah. I was Adam, thinking that was your job. Yeah, yeah, that was your job, Adam. <laughs> well, obviously yeah. if you're talking condos then you know, are you talking ownership? No, you're talking well, rental condo rental prices. condo but even pricing of condos, you know, I think in Toronto like, you know, 1200, $1500 is probably kind of the higher end versus in in Vancouver you're hearing 25, $3000 per square foot purchase price of a of a new condo. So there's still way ahead of us at least as far as the expense side of it? Yeah, certainly the cost, just a much more land-constrained market. Right now, though, the the housing market is is uh, really slowed down in Vancouver in well, terms yeah, of the that's, ownership. And that's, yeah. and that's been a lot of government policy-induced, and that was the consensus of the Vancouver Real Estate Forum that you guys were at, was them talking about the, uh, the policy-induced changes. So no one knowing quite what other taxes are going to come along, so trying to let prices reset. On the rental side, you know, it's it's the same challenge of not enough supply. And although, you know, Vancouver the last three years hasn't had quite as big of a jump, Vancouver's had a long-term 10-year run of the 20 to 39-year-old, the growth in that population. So a very similar pressure. And then more and more people being priced out of ownership keeps them in rental longer, and it keeps people with higher incomes in rental longer, which for landlords trying to build new product, it's making it possible to start, you know, to look at a pro forma and say, yes, I think we can actually we can make this work. So at the at the top at that end of the market that can afford the newer product, you know, I think the higher We're seeing rents absorption. 
Well, you're seeing, or you're just seeing starts, seeing that, you know, the institutional investors, the private investors maybe try to build some more rental. Uh, I think there's a lot more interest in Toronto, same thing. Because one of the challenges we've had in, in both of these markets is just a lack of really good data on what current rents are. The CMHC data blends in-place rents in markets with rent control mm-hmm. with anything new that they've, that's been leased up. So it has a very strong downward bias. And they use, I think, they're, they're, they do use age of construction, but it's in chunks of 20 years. So it's really kind of difficult to get a sense. Yeah, so exactly. So that's, that's been one of, the, one of the challenges even to compare markets is, is looking at, you know, is new product in Toronto the same thing as newer product in Vancouver? And if there's more new product in Vancouver, is it going up faster or not? So do you get a sense that we there is some more supply coming on? Because last time you were here, we were talking kind of, it was it was sort of like, what's the word I'm looking for? Like we were just kind of raised the alarms. Everybody just like, we are having a serious, serious housing constraint issue. I think now that's become, actually last time you were here, the concept of it, is it a demand issue or is it a supply issue? was still a conversation that some people were having. Now it, it, clearly everybody, including politicians in control, are acknowledging it's a supply issue. Do you think that, that we're starting to get momentum to have more more starts and more units come online? I do. I mean, I'm hearing, you know, there's there's some groups that are are tracking, you know, trying to track the numbers for Toronto and, you know, at least proposed, doesn't mean that they have entitlements, doesn't mean they're ready to go, but there's potentially like 40,000 units at various early stages of consideration. And there's probably more than that, that there's, you know, units they don't know about, people tracking this. But then at the same time, a lot of these won't actually end up going, or they're not going to build that many units of rental, some of it will switch to condo, or it's going to be, it's not five years away, it's 20 years away. So there's just a lot of sites in play, but the, that's called, I would still say that's momentum. That's lots of groups who have sites thinking about rental. So that's a good thing for the market to get some coming along. I think the process of approvals, you know, although there's been some change, there's been some new changes. So there was changes two years ago. Yeah. There's there's been we so added, many changes. Yeah. Added the LPAT, got rid of the LPAT, right? So well, you know, you had the OMB, got rid of the, the OMB, yeah. put the LPAT, it's the LPATs in. Yeah. Now, now going back to the OMB, yeah, the Ontario Municipal Board, which is for those not listening, is the appeal board for development in in Ontario. And we're actually going to discuss that in a future episode in depth. So watch okay. that in social yeah, media. Stay on. Okay, yeah. that's that's stay, good. Stay that's tuned. good. So get yeah. someone who's a better expert than yeah. me on uh, on on. That. I don't even know what they are. I just know what the acronyms are. That's <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, but it, exactly, someone to appeal if if you do have a site that's on transit and you could add a lot more density to it, and you know sometimes there's some local neighborhood resistance. There's an opportunity to have a conversation with a higher power about whether uh, this would be the right thing for the long-term development but of that neighborhood. it still takes three years to get an approval. At least that's the, that's the time frame right now. And that, yeah, and that's still a challenge. And that's a challenge in Vancouver. It's a challenge here. And so even though you hear about proposed sites, you know, the market could change, the economy could change, political policies could change. So it's, there's it's, still it's, some obstacles. It's great that there's more starts coming and it seems like we've built momentum, but it's probably going to get another 150,000 people over the next three years, right? Is that not the challenge? That's, yeah. there, that's one of the challenges, exactly, is that there's so much pent-up demand and more people are, are coming and it's trying to even keep up with the numbers that are, you know, that here are arriving today. here today. And uh, I did some math a little while ago and it was based on some slightly older data, but I think it was for Toronto needing about 25,000 rental units either built or vacated by someone who's gone into ownership. And this could include condo, just anything, just to manage this influx. That's what an, oh, annual, tread water. That's an annual basis. Just to tread water. To exactly. Ma- to maintain our current 1% vacancy rate. It's, uh, well, to, address, to address your point about proposed units don't mean actual units. I read an article recently about Vancouver, about the number of units that were being 
proposed units that are being sidelined. That was for condos, which mm -hmm. obviously then feeds the, the shadow rental market. Do you see the same thing happening on the rental side that due to regulatory changes or rising land costs or any of the headwinds against development, apartment projects getting sidelined in the same way the condos are getting sidelined in Vancouver right now? Potentially. It's again, there's, there's still, I guess, some uncertainty with regards to some, you know, policy, but actually a slowdown in the condo market could help in some cases that one of the challenges for rental developers in that market is having to compete with the condo market for land for sites. But there's, you know, some new tools coming in, rental-only zoning is something that the municipalities in the Vancouver area and BC will be allowed to do. But also, even without that, just to be able to, if the condo market is pulling back a bit, there won't be the bidding wars for land that have made, you know, the bid up the land to the point where you can't make a pro forma work on rental. So there's a possibility, in fact, that some more sites will go to groups wanting to do rental. But that remains to be seen. Obviously, it's, it's a market with a bit of uncertainty in it right now. And it's just, you can only have so many, you know, there's just been a number of policy changes and some of them, you know, may work out. You know, there's, there is a lot of alignment though, from different political levels, plus the lenders side. I know First National is pushing hard to help provide supply as much as we possibly can. Mm -hmm. Like even landlords are admitting, like, we just got to get more of this out and pushing the city to approve more. Adam and I off air, were talking about deferred development charges and how you know, CMHC is acknowledging that they're going to basically say that we will acknowledge that deferred development charge and give the developer the benefit so that they can, you know, basically build more, you know, without having to, you know, hold that capital aside or, you know, notionally, you know, account for that capital, even though it really is truly a, a deferred cost. Maybe we should transition a little bit. We've been talking about housing, but we want to talk about other asset classes. So you want to go into office office first and the impact that this demographic surge has had on on the office market? Yeah, or it's been, it's been a part of a change in the office market. Sure. That this group, a lot, of the, a lot of the new housing's been built in the downtown core. So along with that, most of the new, the majority of the new office absorption has also been in, in the downtown core to the point where, you know, Toronto had the lowest vacancy rate or still has the lowest vacancy rate in North America for downtown office. But what preceded that, we've talked about in this podcast too, is what preceded Toronto having the lowest vacancy rate was a prediction that our vacancy rate was going to shoot upwards. And then fast forward a year later, and all of a sudden we have the lowest vacancy rate. We actually, uh, at the time, we didn't know that First National was going to move into this building, but First National is moving. You know, if Wendy visits us for her fourth or fifth visit, it'll be at a brand new Cadillac Fairview. It was a spec build. And we talked about that building on this episode. We thought a spec build in Toronto, 800,000 square feet, that sounds really crazy. And they leased it up very quickly, including tenants like like us. Yeah. And now we're at a point where, of course, the vacancy rate has plummeted. And they look they look brilliant because they were ahead of the curve. And I mean, let's give Wendy some credit because I think um, what is the year that you kind of did your, your South Core prediction because you had identified that to be a huge opportunity years before, you know, that everybody else had realized it. Well, back in 2009, yeah, yeah. when we were advising uh, the client, which was BCIMC, on that site. And, if, you know, you could just look at some of the longer-term trends. You could see all the condos going up. And you could look at other markets that have been through that, which Vancouver was a good example of a lot of the, the fringe to downtown areas went condo. And suddenly the demand shifted from the, su the suburbs into the downtown. And because people wanted to walk to work and that's where a lot of your talent pool was. These, this so, demographic that's coming into Toronto, quite this, frankly. This demographic. And so exactly, and it's still still happening in Vancouver. It's happening in, in you know, Seattle and you know, Nashville and a lot of other places have, have, that are seeing the same big jump in this 20 to 39-year-old population. But yeah, so South Core is a good example of, you know, it seemed like it was a great location on transit, 
amenities nearby, more amenities coming, because you could see the, the planning of the, the additional condos in the area. So yeah, so that was one that, uh, that we were very and positive where on. Are, where are rents now in the GTA? Or I guess let's do Toronto core, like in the downtown core. Where are office rents? I, don't, I, don't, I haven't seen what the most recent numbers. Do you well, have what, are we, what are we paying in the new building? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, I, know, I think, I don't even, I'm not even sure. I think back maybe a year ago, I heard sort of 35, 45 bucks net was, was triple net was kind of the going rate for new product. Do you have any sense of where it is now? I don't have a number on front of me. We don't have a new product going up in Toronto, in Vancouver. The numbers are a little higher on the brand new building yeah, sure. than that. I don't want to be the one revealing yeah. what it is. Well, okay, I'll, um, I'll put the numbers in. Oh, I'll just say yeah, it because I, I, don't, I don't have to worry about the, the repercussions of putting a number out there. Like, I think they're in the 55 to 60 net range. Does that sound right to you, Adam? We're recording this. I'm not, I'm not going to back you up on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, I would say that Class A office space, you might be achieving that. So, and then if you go around, maybe Wendy, if you have a sense of where they are in other major markets, I know in Manhattan, eighty to ninety dollars is not unusual. Like that's not this is not sort of top end globally, but there has to be a ceiling at some point where corporations say, okay, you know what, like yeah, the talent pool's down there, but that doesn't make any sense for me to spend that money when I can go pay fifteen to twenty dollars net in Mississauga, and then the math of attracting the talent pools. Like, do you have do you have a, a sense of where the the threshold is? Don't have a sense of where the threshold is, but what I will say is that real estate costs are actually a very small fraction of the cost of running a business, especially one that's very dependent on, we'll say, tech talent. So the vast majority of their expenses are that talent. And the you know attracting and retaining those people, I mean, it's something in the range of, depending on which company and, and which analyst you, you read, you know, somewhere in that 80 to 90% plus is the talent costs. And then you've got some technology costs, and then you've got real estate after that. So real estate's not even the now. Obviously, the bigger the so number, it's not on, moving the dial as much. The bigger the number on the real estate, obviously, it's going to push up. But then in places like Manhattan and San Francisco, your talent is even more expensive than it is in so like say, Toronto. It almost stays proportionately the same if you're paying three hundred thousand dollars on average for your tech talent, whether your yep. rents are a hundred bucks or. 60 bucks per square foot. It doesn't matter. So lower lower turnover in your talent could save you the difference of moving to the suburbs. Yes, exactly. So a lot of companies, they're really just looking at how do I keep the people there to get the work done that my core business requires. And if that's being downtown, that's being downtown. If that's offering a downtown and a suburban option, then that might be what some companies would do as well. Where's the GWL office in uh, Vancouver? Where are we? We are yeah. downtown okay. uh, in Vancouver Center 1, and we are building next door Vancouver Center 2, the okay. brand new building. And attracting talent as a result of it. I think yeah, we we attract talent, but uh, the downtown Vancouver area is, is uh, yeah, it's it's where you know again the same tech companies that are moving into downtown Toronto. A lot of them have been there for a little while, and and some of them have tried the suburbs and did not get the traction in terms. Yeah, there of the is talent. more office development in Vancouver now than there were five years ago. Is that true? Yes, as a percentage of the market, Vancouver is about eleven percent of the market under construction in equivalent. Uh, Toronto is about six. But for for total total square foot being built, just the the percentage of the total inventory oh, that's okay. under construction. So Toronto, I think, is about eleven million square feet under construction. Vancouver's about six, but Vancouver's a much smaller market. Right, right. So we've spoken quite a bit about about offices, and we are recording here in a building that features two floors of WeWork space. And I feel if we're discussing Toronto and Vancouver, given that WeWork has a pretty large presence in both of those markets we'd be remiss not to discuss the impacts on office usage, this new world of uh, co-working. Do you have any data that you've looked into regarding how that's impacting landlords in both those markets? 
Well, I think, well, it's affecting in so many different ways. It's affecting the office market. And obviously it's not just WeWork, so we'll just broaden out to co-working. And there's a lot of brands, especially in the U.S., that are trying slightly different angles on the concept of flexible, you know, flexible lease terms and a really high service environment. But maybe, you know, first to think about that co-working offers a variety of different office uses. So you guys mentioned, you know, off, uh, off air in this building, it's primarily one subtenant that is taking up the co-working space in this building in the financial services industry where, you know, where co-working started, it was aggregating people who otherwise might have been at Starbucks or in the spare bedroom in their condo. And now, and then, they, you know, first then they got them into co-working spaces. And now a lot of the co-working business is providing space on flexible terms for, we'll call them Fortune 500, or I think WeWork calls them enterprise clients, but really some of these larger corporations, as well as even just, you know, slightly smaller companies that don't know where they want to go, but they would be a half-floor tenant or a quarter-floor tenant. What I think was missed when when we work, you know, it kind of kind of shook the industry a little bit. People started saying, "Wait a minute, how can they have so much space and who's using it?" And, mm-hmm. and clearly, that's kind of that is becoming clear. In my mind, what I think people didn't really appreciate was the ability for these smaller entities or the larger entities to outsource their. They don't need to worry about office supplies. They don't need to worry about having a front desk. They don't need to worry about an IT people. Like they're really outsourcing their their office services and all of that other stuff that comes along. So they can just focus on whatever their core business is and not exactly. get especially if you're a company of three, the president probably gets caught up in, oh shoot, you know, the computer's not working and oh my printer's broken and how do I call? Like you end up spending so much wasted time. And so this coworker co-working space has really allowed companies to just kind of get rid of all that. Yeah, and it's well, especially and so obviously as startups, it's perfect because you you know one week you're three people, the next week you're six, and two months later you're twelve. One, you can just find more space. You know, hopefully co-working and some of it's getting very full, but you can find more space. And then exactly, you don't have to be worrying about who's getting coffee. If we're having a client meeting, you know, do we have a place that's clean enough to have it or that's organized enough? Instead, you know, obviously the the co-working place has meeting rooms. There's coffee. There's you know and snacks. The, and the IT is, is the set IT up and works. works really well. Yeah. Exactly. Someone else looks after all of that. And I think that's something that, you know, getting back to how is it impacting landlords, is that this group is demonstrating that there is a market for a high service level in office space and that the tenants will pay for it. You know, that, uh, you know, we've done sort of back in the napkin in Vancouver, figure, trying to figure out the differential between what some of the big co-working providers maybe went into a space at and what they're charging. And, you know, you're getting anywhere from 50 to 100% markup on space. Now, obviously, in that, they have to then provide the IT service, the wireless printers, the beer on tap, if they have it, you know, the coffee. But at the same time, that's a lot more in rent than what we were just talking about in terms of of office rents that they're getting on a square foot. And then, so, you, okay, so you're one of the costs for the user is the benefit of those services, but they also get the flexibility. And so that's a big, that's a big savings as well, in theory. Well, savings, especially if you're smaller, you don't know where you're going. You know, you don't know if a year from now you're going to be 30 people or 50 people or the same 12 people who are working for you today. Or in the event of an enterprise user, you don't know if that project that you needed for three years of space gets terminated or whatever, right? Yeah, exactly. The other thing that a lot of the enterprise users are using the co-working space for, and this is particularly prevalent in Vancouver, is waiting for their new office space to get built. And so they're in co-working space. The other thing that, uh, and WeWork's talked about this a little bit, is in, in some of their releases, and, and you know, I think maybe, I'm not sure if Gina spoke about it when she was on your podcast, is as a way to get into a market. So if they, you know, if a company wants to try out 
a new Canadian city or new U.S. or you know, a city anywhere in the world. And if they have a relationship with one of the big co-working providers, they'll say, hey, can you get us some space? We want to try the talent pool in this market for a certain project. Maybe it's a two-year project, and that's how they get into these markets. If they don't want to go through all the trouble themselves, and this could be these really large tech companies, you think, don't they have people who go out and get do facilities? Mm-hmm. And they do, but they're still growing so fast that they want to let somebody else deal with You'll set it up, get the IT working, get the coffee working. Especially if there's language barriers or cultural barriers or whatever it may be. Yeah, yeah. so that's, uh, that's, a, that's a, huge, a huge piece of it. And it's just, it's another, you know, for landlords, it's another group that's in the office space and, you know, demonstrating that there is a model. So some of the landlords have gone to try to create their own co-working space, a high, a high service space. You know, I think it's also just in terms of amenities that these co-working companies want. It's pushing landlords to upgrade buildings in some cases. It's part of the lease deal. If you have a bigger lease deal with some of these companies, it may be a requirement to add fitness, add end of trip, upgrade the lobby. You may have noticed when you came in today an upgraded lobby in our building as a result of WeWork's presence. Yeah. Okay. I, I, which, did, I did notice that it looked a little flashy. Which I, I believe time. may have actually been done by WeWork as part of their, hey, we'll come to this building, but we want to improve because it was a kind of an older, an older model, you know, an older uh, entrance. We should probably, while we're here, just you wrote a, a paper on co-working. Do you want to just kind of tell people where they could find it just so that they can go and read more about this? We, we yeah. can link it in the... Uh, yeah, we will put it in the show notes okay, for you. Yeah, well. so I recently authored a piece on co-working for what's called Priya Magazine, which is the Pension Fund Real Estate Association. It's based in the U.S. And uh, so it covers a lot of the high-level trends related to co-working. And as, yeah, I think there's going to be a link off of your podcast. Mm-hmm. And you could also, if you just if you were to Google Priya co-working, you'd probably find or it. I, I found it just typing Wendy Waters Priya and it showed up. So there's lots of ways <laughs> to find it. And I, I, so maybe we, we should talk about some of the shortcomings of having WeWork, uh, or sorry, having co-working space in your buildings too, because there are some challenges with this use of the office. Well, yeah, there's a few things. I mean, some things are not unique to co-working. It's a different way of, of using space. And some of the tech companies were already doing this, which is higher density, more f- flexible space just even for individuals where people don't necessarily have their own office. There might just be more bench seating. So higher density of people, but higher density people in co-work, whether it's co-working or whether it's another type of tenant. Yeah, that, that can be a bit of, that can be a challenge to think about. One is elevator usage. It's more people on the elevators. So the capital requirements on the building, more people breathing air. So the HVAC requirements on the building, washrooms, some buildings, you have to make sure that it meets fire code, having more people in a building. Longer hours of work too, I think, because you've, you know, you mm-hmm. no longer have this nine to five sort of finance institution sort of structure work day, people showing up at all times of hours. Yeah. And often that's something that has to be negotiated is running the HVAC at longer hours than a building used to in order to accommodate these, these other tenants. And said, so again, it's not always... It's not only the co-working. There's other tenants that are now requesting that. But it, it's all of, you know, just who's using the building and how. So more amenities, more service, but also the, the capital expenses. I mean, it's not unique to co-working. Just in the U.S., um, someone pulled some NCREF data, which is a, a, you know, a supplier of information in the United States. And w- looking at the capital expenses on office buildings have been going up quite substantially just the last three to five years, which is as there's been this huge growth in co-working, but also these tech firms and having to spend I can, more. I can feel it here at First National or sorry, at this building in, that we reside in with just the two floors of co-working space where there seems to be more people lined up in the mornings and it seems to be busier at lunch. And I couldn't imagine if there were eight floors of co-working space in, in this building. It would, I'd have to use the stairs every day. Well, I think that's something that, yeah, something landlords are now looking at is, 
you know, making sure you've got obviously the, the elevator capacity to manage, you know, co-work, manage a co-working or any higher density use again. So we don't want to just, just pick on that, that industry, but higher density use because yeah, you've got people coming and going and a little bit more of these different, out, working slightly different hours off, off for meetings, but especially co-working does tend to have people that are coming and going a little bit more in, in some cases. You know, one possibility would be to look at internal stairwells, and certainly one of uh, WeWork's locations in Vancouver is going to have is going to be located starting on the first floor of one of the Bentall buildings. And they, they said that when I was uh, touring, they told me they were going to be putting in internal stairwell between and, uh, just for the WeWork space, just for the WeWork right. space, so they could, could walk up and down the stairs, not but, have to use the infrastructure of the office, yeah, of the office tower. But I think that may be something some landlords will look at for doing some bigger leases, as you say, not just two. If it's not just two floors, but it's multiple floors, just as any as a lot of companies now are doing the internal stairwells because they're good for communication and those sort of chance encounters, a little bit like the water cooler, except for you're on the stairs but to put in the staircases internally. And because no one wants to be sitting around waiting for an elevator, no matter, like you don't want to be waiting for them, but they don't really want to be waiting for you in the elevator either. Yeah, so course. they would much rather have their own stairwells. No, I think in your article, you said that 3% of the office space is, is tenanted by co-worker, co-working companies? In the bigger markets. So yeah, Manhattan's getting up close to three, I think two, eight. Vancouver's at two, eight, but potentially going higher. So this would be um, North American-based numbers, or these US are North, Canada? Yeah, this, uh, this, the numbers I have are, are US Canada, although I think London is, is up there as well. There are some researchers, and there's different, uh, especially the brokerage has out of the US that have been really looking at this, and the or international real estate brokerages, that some are looking at 5 to 10%, say by 2030. Um, some are even thinking it might be 30% of space might be flexible, but that probably doesn't necessarily mean it's on a co-working lease. I think by 30%, I'm a, you know, it wasn't clear from, from how I read it, but... I would think maybe landlords offering certain spaces on a flexible basis as opposed to a right. 10-year lease. So the research is suggesting 2 to 3% is a small amount and there's certainly more room to grow based on the demand that, that the co-working companies are, are experiencing. Yeah, so obviously they're experiencing demand from everybody, from individuals who want this flexibility of, you know, want to have a place to go. Where someone else looks after the IT, you can meet a client, it's all there, to, you know, the Amazons and Facebooks and so forth of the world who, as they move into new markets, want large amounts of space. So does the business model work? Because I, I still hear people saying, oh, the business model doesn't work and WeWork's going to go bankrupt and they owe too much money. Like, Can we put that to bed? Like, The business model works and, and they're going to be successful going forward? Well, I think we, what we don't know is none of them have been through, other than, I guess, Regis, which is the original sort of packaged office space provider, they're the only one of the players, major players out there that's been through an economic downturn, a major economic downturn. And they actually did a little bit better during, I think it was like 2009, 2010. So they had certain times during the downturns when they've done better, but they really struggled after the dot-com crash. So are, is this industry going you know, to survive long term? My gut feeling is it will because they are filling a niche in the market that wasn't being met and which is the, the more flexibility and just the higher service component. You can focus on re- attracting talent and getting your work done. But will every one of those companies survive that's out there? There's a lot of different, you know, there's local, you know, a number of local Toronto or Canadian companies. There's a lot of U.S. companies. There's the global ones. Will all of them survive in the next downturn? Probably not. I suspect there'll be some consolidation. Somebody will buy out somebody else. The other thing that may happen is every location may not survive. There may be some quick, sudden 
you know, shutdown of locations if there was something like the global financial crisis that happened in 2008, 2009. I don't think the next economic downturn looks like that, but, right. um, but there's well, they're providing flexibility and presumably in a, in a global downturn, flexibility is a, is a premium. So, okay, my lease comes due in the middle of something like this and I'd rather have some flexibility in my, my leasing space. I think, yeah, I think there's some, there's definitely some logic to that. So, you know, I, you know, not having seen the books of all these companies, I can't comment sure, of for certain, but I think they've they've hit on something that probably will will endure, but will there be some pain and some consolidation at some point? Yes, I think they well, they, they will. Does it exist in a market like Calgary that has an abundance of vacant space? Is anybody familiar with uh, co-working in Calgary? Well, certainly uh, WeWork is now there, or they've done leases. I don't think they've opened yet, but that was one of the last places they were you know, for that major company, that major brand to go into. Yeah, there have been, uh, and there's been some smaller providers and more niche co-working that have worked in Calgary. But obviously, it, it's a slightly different model where, you know, their space is plentiful and fairly inexpensive. So the idea that you need co-working as a way to get into a market, there's just so it much built work. out yeah. space that's already there and it's fairly inexpensive. And landlords will work with you in terms of some of the fit out and, and so forth as well. But one reason to go there is just part of their network. So when I was touring WeWork in Vancouver, and hopefully I'm allowed to, WeWork will not be upset if I, if I say this, I asked where, what, you know, somehow it came up in the conversation where their existing members were wanting to have locations so when they were visiting clients. And Calgary was one of the top places that people wanted to see, people from Vancouver, this is the person running a Vancouver sure. working operation, that where they wanted to see well, that makes sense. When we had we work on previously, one of the comments they were making was that the ability for sort of companies that have multiple offices or, or people that are traveling for business on a regular basis, having the comfort of knowing they've always got a place to go, it's the same passcode, it's the, the same sort of vibe everywhere you are around the world, that that's a real attractive feature of being a, a WeWork member. Exactly. So I think that's probably one of the things that pushed them into that market. And also, I think there may be some companies that want to try out Calgary you know, in terms of expanding, you know, their, you know, tech operations or whatever their, their global operation is. And they, they're comfortable with, you know, a co-working provider and say, okay, we'll, we'll try six months or a year with you in, in a Calgary market. So I'm hoping that we'll see some of that because Calgary could use some, some good news along those lines. Absolutely. But I think, but that's something that, yeah, there's that, that side of, we, of co-working that we haven't really spoken about, which is you've also got companies with, you know, that have a global presence, but in some cities they have three or four people who are either the, they're the service team, the customer service team, or the sales team in particular. And you want to give them a place to go, but you really don't want to have to deal with all the hassles of running an office. So this becomes perfect that you can have, your company has a relationship with one of the co-working providers, and these colleagues can be you know, at that location in, in another city. So that's, uh, that's something that's fairly, it's what people have used, you know, sort of the Regis and some of the other packaged office in the past or just a local private packaged office mm-hmm. provider. But now you've just got this one relationship you can have with one of the big providers and you can be in many cities you know. Yeah, and I think I can't remember now, but 30, 40, 50, 60 cities, like it's, it's global everywhere, right? Almost everywhere. The themes for today, obviously, is kind of scarcity and its impact on the major markets. We discussed housing, we discussed office, but we haven't got into you know, retail or industrial, which largely gets ignored when you're discussing this you know, surge of people heading into the major markets in Toronto. But of course, these people do require retail uses. They do require industrial uses. What, was, what, do we, what are we seeing there in terms of numbers that are, I mean, obviously, if you're talking about Toronto Vancouver, prices are going up. That's very clear. 
but this cohort of people that are swarming into the cities. What are you seeing there in terms of support for those numbers going up? Well, I think, yeah, the, the other side of, of all of, of this change of population, certainly it's a group that's very comfortable with e-commerce and buying online, just demographically. This is, a, this is a group that's very comfortable with that. And we've really seen the last few years, we've seen just a steady growth in e-commerce sales in Canada. And Toronto's a major hub for that. But then also you've got, you know, just to service this growing Toronto population, a need for bigger warehouse distribution facilities and, you know, we've certainly seen a lot of demand for industrial space in the Toronto area, we're seeing, you know, rents finally going up in industrial product, which is uh, leading to more of it to be built. But I think that's something that's got it, that's maybe still catching up as well is the demand for this logistic space to manage this growth. And so you've got obviously the e-commerce side, but you've also got is we're building all this housing for them. Obviously, we're saying not quite enough, but there's still a lot of condo and, and uh, you know, row housing and other housing under construction. All the materials for that tends to come through major warehouses. If you start to think about how many appliances do you need in a condo tower when you start adding up how many dishwashers, how many, mm-hmm. you know, Washer dryers, fridges. What does a warehouse full of toilets look like? (laughs) (laughs) They're out there, and so just just the amount of growth in Toronto and uh, that it's needing, you know, the the industrial market has been growing to to meet that, and you know, Vancouver obviously has reached a capacity point to the point, you know, to the point where some of this stuff gets stored in Calgary. And 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 double decker industrial apparently is being discussed as well, especially for Vancouver. A recent article referenced uh, a couple of cities in the U.S. that are doing double decker industrial and. I know Vancouver's looking at it as well. Yeah, there's been, there's certainly, um, there's, there's some proposed, I'm not quite sure where they are in construction. Early, early days. Yeah, yes. early yeah. days. But even within some of these warehouses, and I, I won't give the brand name, but some of these logistics warehouses, they're putting multiple layers, effectively floors of racking. So it's almost like inside their big box, they are putting multiple stories inside. So the outside just looks like a one story, but in fact, on the inside, there's multiple stories of, you know, of space for doing Distribution and the, and the you know, the additional stress on the real estate when you get closer to the downtown core. We always talk about this last mile delivery, where we, that smaller industrial space, and you know, it's, you're you're seeing it in all sorts of forms and fashions now to get as close to the downtown core so that you can deliver as quickly as possible to, you know, a lot of this hundred and fifty thousand of new new demographics. Yeah, well, it's certainly the last mile. No one's completely figured out how to do that mousetrap around North America, but yeah, the, the older industrial in the inner inner core is certainly one place where there's some staging, and and uh, some of the groups in in New York have, have experimented with, yeah. Well, someone um, recently was talking about. I think it's in the U.S. They're seeing this more because there's more more retail space, but some of the older malls that are not getting nearly as much demand now converting some of that unused department space and just using that as industrial. Yeah, there's certainly talk, yeah, that some of the suburban malls could be some last mile. But another side of this rise in the 20 to 39-year-old, what, what we're also seeing, of course, is the rise of the um, food delivery. So the skip the dishes and kind of, you know. The Uber Eats. Yeah. Uber Eats, but all of these. And what some of these are now coming, not from a real restaurant, but in older industrial space, they're setting up in kitchens. And you can have four or five different restaurant brands. So you've got your Chinese brand, your Korean brand, your Indian brand, and it's all set up there. And they cook the food and it all goes out of the same place. And gets delivered. So some of the, uh, in some cities, you're seeing this inner urban, old industrial getting used for that. So yet another use and it, that's reflecting this trend of all of this delivery. And it's, again, you, and with food, you can't be that far from your audience because food just doesn't have a long shelf life. But at a, at a fraction of the per square foot rent that you'd see if you're maintaining a retail location on a major thoroughfare. Exactly. Well, and the stress on the kitchen if they're trying to provide 
dinner for a table, you know, 30 tables, plus then also accommodating all of the demand for the delivery. Yeah, and where you know where do you put all the delivery guys coming and going? So some you know some of the restaurants in, in my neighborhood in Vancouver they're all pretty small, and these guys coming and going it's a major distraction when you're also trying yeah trying to run a restaurant. So this idea yeah so that's another use of old some of the old industrial space that's fitting this different experience oriented economy where people are just ordering food pre made. One thing I thought that uh, Toronto did well is. You call it 10 years ago, when housing was really starting to explode here, developers were chipping away some of the old employment land, all the industrial land in the near suburbs. And at that point, Toronto put a stop to a lot of that. And now those buildings would be, and, you know, at that point, vacancy would have been much higher. They weren't, they weren't overly utilized. But now that would be very valuable for servicing all of the, the downtown core people that would be using these kinds of services. They preserve the employment land, preserve the industrial, and now we're reaping the benefits that is still there. Not to say the developers had, didn't chip away at a lot of it and turn it into condos, but uh, it, was, it was some foresight, I think, on the city of Toronto. Yeah, and I think that's something important to keep in mind in any wave is you, at one point you think, oh, you know, you know, say maybe 15 years ago, people think, well, why would we need any more office sites downtown? People are moving to the suburbs. And, you know, downtown, the, the taxes are too high and whatever other reasons, and, and people want to live in the suburbs, so why yeah, would we need that? transportation is terrible, yeah, yeah, yeah. All, all of those. And, and yet then, you know, fortunately, a lot of sites stayed, and, and now we're seeing, obviously, the huge demand for downtown Toronto and, and huge rents. And, and so in any, in any of the cities, to be thinking about employment lands and, yeah, the old industrial space that certain, certain sites maybe are for employment. Now, it doesn't mean you couldn't go mixed use. San Francisco's got some interesting ones where they've allowed for office or multi-res above, say, old inner urban industrial, which now is in areas that have a lot of residential or a lot of office. You still have to keep what they call the PDA space, the production distribution assembly. But above it, you can do something else. So they still keep the employment space, but go up and add you know, you office just, or multi-res. You a small little lo- lobby at the f- one side of it and put some elevators in there. And next thing you know, you multi-purpose that real, real yeah. estate. Yeah, and I think that's maybe something we'll have to look at in places like Toronto and Vancouver where you do have some sites which, yes, you want to keep the employment lands and that's really important or for the future, but to be thinking about other places where you could- Use the air st- rights. Use the airspace to add, you know, especially obviously housing is, is going to continue to be a challenge. So is there a way to add, add housing? But in some other places or at other times, it may be needing more office space or more- Sort of more industrial for kind of the, you know, the Uber Eats and the, you know, or skip the more, dishes. More drone landing pads, right? Who knows, right? It's something like that. But you could, you could imagine you could even have two or three stories of kind of, you know, industrial kitchens making food for delivery that wouldn't have to all be on a single floor. So where does this leave us for retail? I mean, we're talking about uh, industrial eating retail's lunch. All this influx of people has got to be good for retail, at least in, in urban cores. Mm-hmm. What are you seeing there in terms of, I mean, obviously if you're talking about suburban malls, they're, they're suffering quite a lot right now, but urban core retail, is this good news? All these people coming in. Well, I think it's it, all of the retail, even in, even in sub, more suburban areas, you know, it's not that retail's dead. It's that boring retail is dead. And I'm cribbing that from somebody else, but it's that, you know, people want a good experience. And so what's happening at a lot of shopping centers that might be a little bit less in the core is they're going to much more of an experience, a lot more food and beverage. So different levels of restaurant, maybe instead of a food court, they're now calling it a food hall, going a little bit more upscale on the types of food providers in you know, what we could have called a food court, but they're not, you know, your traditional, it's not McDonald's, just McDonald's and Subway. You've actually got a wider range. And also into sit-down, you know, sit-down restaurants, adding some other entertainment in the area. So making the, the shopping center a destination. 
And so you're seeing seeing that, you know, as well as obviously in the core, there's the advantage of just a lot of different uh, retail options. But even then, you're seeing in the, you know, so the, the path level in, in Toronto or the, you know, the, the mall or the street level of office buildings in any of the cities, you're seeing a lot more attention to activating that space with what's often more of a restaurant use. But then there's also some cases where they've got pop-up retail and other more creative retail that comes in. So it's not that retail is dead, it's just you're having to be a lot more creative with it and offering a good experience. As they say, you need to give people a reason to put on pants and not shop online. And that can be, obviously, you're going to meet friends for drinks and then you'll go and, you know, you might browse some interesting retail while you're while you're doing that or before or after you meet your friends for drinks or dinner. So we talked about you know, the four major food groups, the four major the asset classes, but to, to wrap it all up, what do you think is the most interesting takeaway from the recent research you did in regards to the shift we're seeing as a result of the scarcity in the, the big cities in, in uh, Canada? Well, I think it's the scarcity is a lot of new product coming online and, you know, in, in all asset classes, but maybe if we start, start with office, that's the most obvious one, is these new office buildings have a lot more amenities than some of the older and legacy product, as we like to call it. So bigger fitness centers, often, you know, ground or above ground level, will have end of trip for cycle and jogging commuters. Often there's a podium or rooftop outdoor space. So that's, there's a lot of new, nice new space plus, uh, you know, modern newer HVAC, which provides perhaps a better quality of, of air. And so what I think will be the interesting thing to watch will be with all of the legacy product that's out there, how that gets changed because some of it has a lot of charm. It has some heritage or it has really great locations. So to see which lobbies get changed and how, what amenities get added in different spaces, and, and so I think that'll be the, one of the interesting things to watch and which types of tenants start looking for the older space, the older buildings where maybe they can make it their own as opposed to the tenants wanting to go into brand new. So I think it's going to be really interesting to watch this wave of new supply and what happens. It is interesting because there are some really kind of cool buildings that are, I was in an office building visiting a client a couple of days ago and it was one of those old buildings where they still had like the mail drops at the elevator bay. So you're at the elevator bay and you could put your mail in and the mail would go down to the basement and they get sorted, right? Clearly it's not in use anymore, but it's got this charm to it, right? This kind of unique, you can't recreate that kind of that vibe of being in those buildings. Yeah, exactly. That authenticity. And I think on the multi-res side, the rental apartment, obviously there's there's some legacy buildings that are more of the modernist architecture of a large concrete, you know, style, which, you know, we'll have some, see some interesting challenges of how those get upgraded. But there's also some some even older buildings that really do have that that old charm of detail that you don't tend to even see today in the newer products. So there's, I think it'll be interesting to see which, how those buildings evolve as well as the, you know, the new, the new product and what kinds of amenities is, you know, some new product, whether it's office, multi-res, the amenities, there's lots of new amenities being tried, but as you learn which ones really appeal to renters or to office tenants, you can start to then pick and choose which ones go into the legacy buildings because you'll only have so much room. And then what about, in the, what about in the apartment space? You see, what are the challenges for some of that old legacy stock? One of the challenges, what people want, the expectations uh, for in-suite washer dryer is certainly one of the challenges that we've looked to find different solutions for. And I know other landlords as well in the old stock, that that's one thing that tends to hold back, you know, maybe whether you can push rents or it changes what your, your tenant mix is, is uh, that ability to put a washer dryer in. So that's one of the, the challenges. And it's just, I guess it's the, the pipes and the 
the infrastructure, the, infrastructure. Yeah, the, guts, the guts of the building that just can't manage or can't can't sustain the, that that stress. Yeah. Well, what we found is there are some technologies now, particularly coming out of Europe, which uh, which can work. So that's so that's one of the limits or one of the challenges there. But otherwise, it's um, you know I think it's the stock is just going to be seeing you know you can't have quite as many amenities if the building's already built out. But, but there's probably not a bad thing because those buildings become more affordable. Yeah, they will over time. And it may be exactly. Somebody will trade amenities for price and not someone else will pay more to get the amenities. And so I think what's great in the, the multi-res space in particular is, is there still is always going to be this spectrum of options, location, amenities, price. Even some of the older buildings have bigger units. So you might not be able to get the latest washer dryer, but you can have a much bigger unit if you don't mind, you know, using a shared laundry room on the floor. And there'll be people that obviously will choose that. So that's certainly something that's great in a big city like, like Toronto, where there's just a lot of different options. It's just, we need more, more options. And, yeah. uh, you know. And curiously in the industrial space, there's probably not a lot of, I mean, the legacy buildings are, as long as they're not sort of, even if they are, I mean, it doesn't matter, even if they are 12 foot clear. Oh no, there's a ceiling, service that will come. It doesn't matter. Take your, yeah. take your lit, your, the roof of your building off, like opening a can and jack you up to 30 feet, 40 feet, whatever you want. There's a cost to it, obviously, but the, you know, the land cost is so big to begin with, it can make sense. It's viable. Yeah, well, and also there's a whole bunch of different industrial tenants, and we tend to focus maybe more on the large logistics users when we have conversations like this. But there's a lot of business, small businesses that use what we call the small bay industrial space, and some of them are quite happy back to you know, the kitchens with 12 feet, 15 feet. But also just these, you know, they're they're running a tile shop or they're doing some custom cabinetry or something along those lines. And they don't necessarily need as tall of a ceiling as a lot, you know, a, a 3PL logistics sure. tenant does. So there's a lot of, there's uses for that. And it's part of the, the growth of Toronto, this rapid growth also has meant a rapid growth of just people, you know, just a family business that's able to rent an older industrial space and and provide a service or a product into this rapidly so, growing I mean, area. To, to sum that up, there's probably not nearly as much impact on the industrial asset because of this new, you know, influx of, of demographics or a new influx of, of, of population that we're seeing. Well, I think it's it's just in a different place. I think I would say there is an impact, and that is on indu- overall industrial demand. Sorry, but more about the legacy legacy assets that are going to get stuck with, you know not being used or, or, you know, being more challenged for landlords. Yeah. It's obviously going to depend on the location and depend on the asset, but there's a lot of just in a really dynamic economy like Toronto, we can remember there's, there's users for a lot of, of different types. I think, you know, that it'll be, there's, there's, there's probably a few varieties of industrial space from, you know, say 20, 25 years ago that may or may not, you know, that may not be as relevant to any of these groups looking forward. But it's just, we, we look at industrial as having, Different, there are different options for different parts of the, the business community. It's an exciting time to be in real estate. And so every time you come in, it always opens their eyes a little bit to you know where we could be headed. And it's exciting to be active in markets like Vancouver and Toronto. So we thank you for, for coming in. And we look forward to having you back for what would be a, a record-setting <laughs> we were joking before. We're, Adam and I are the only people who care about how many times a visit our guest comes on. But, but thank you for coming back again, Wendy. We really appreciate you coming. All right. All right. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.